You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Uncle Henry sat on the doorstep and looked anxiously at the sky, which was even grayer than usual. Dorothy stood in the door with Toto in her arms and looked at the sky, too. Aunt Em was washing the dishes. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. From the far north, they heard a low wail of the wind. Uncle Henry and Dorothy could see where the long grass bowed in waves before the coming storm. There now came a sharp whistling in the air. There's a cyclone coming, Em, he called to his wife. I'll go look after the stock. Then he ran towards the sheds where the cows and the horses were kept. Aunt Em dropped her work and came to the door. Quick, Dorothy, she screamed. Run for the cellar. Then a strange thing happened. The house whirled around two or three times and rose slowly through the air. Dorothy felt as if she were going up in a balloon. The north and south winds met where the house stood and made it the exact center of the cyclone. In the middle of a cyclone, the air is generally still, but the great pressure of the wind on every side of the house raised it higher and higher until it was at the very top of the cyclone. And there it remained, and was carried miles and miles away, as easily as you could carry a feather. Excuse the people of the time when Frank Baum was writing these words, but he didn't know yet would become famous. You can't excuse their emotions if they too felt like they were in a cyclone. The decade starts with a severe economic shock. There's even a popular book that depicts that economic crash as a cyclone. Upending the farmer, upending the industrial worker. And with that force, new ideas would be reckoned with. Railroads would be under great scrutiny. Farmers would be in open revolt in the States. Unemployment, roaming armies of jobless men as policy leaned east towards banks, manufacturing companies. Prairie populace won four states in the last presidential election. Several congressional seats, a couple of Senate seats, several governors. And politicians would do more than watch. Prior to making his historic speech, he sucked on a ripe lemon. He'd need his voice for this one. He'd need to hit the rafters. Probably his one shot. This, or maybe out of politics. He gave up his House seat. He lost the Senate race and was ineffective in Congress thus far. The current president didn't like him. So the lemon it was. The big party convention in Chicago, 1896, a convention, a group of people in one place, one time, ostensibly undecided about who they will pick It could be like an animal, this collective being. 
the speaker would say years later about his own moment. The party had a choice, probably. Richard Bland of Missouri, a sensible legislator with lots of experience in Congress, would take up the banner. In a normal time, Bland would be the choice. This wasn't a normal time. The country was jolted by a depression, and not a small one. And the Democrats meeting this year in a state headed up by a radical governor, some felt, wanted to grab some of that support. Young William Jennings Bryan had just moved to his home state of Nebraska nine years before, developed a good reputation there as a lawyer, and got to Congress, representing Lincoln, Nebraska. It was a good time. The population of Nebraska was increasing rapidly in the 19th century, fastest growing state in the country up to this time. His own election in the state that had sent Republicans previously showed the changing of the West. And Bryan, a Democrat, like so many American candidates before and since, thought he had the stuff to be the leader, not just supporting someone else, when Brian was concentrating on tariff issues. Tariff? Leading Democrat Joseph Bailey of Texas told Brian, eh, tariff, that's important, but it's about falling prices, and it's related to the currency question. That's the issue. Thus directed, Brian poured into it, learned everything he could about silver and gold and politics. He wrote articles for the Omaha world that went all over the country. He became one of the key spokespeople for the silver movement. He benefited a lot from a pamphlet that went around the country that mostly made the point that the people were being denied one thing, and that was diversity in the metals used in the currency that was keeping farmers down, that were keeping prices up, that were keeping the banks winning. Like any book that captures the imagination of people, it was controversial, but Brian seized upon it. His own party's president was a gold bug Democrat. But at this convention, it had already happened in the early primaries. The delegates that were going to this convention, it was already decided. The silver issue would be one on the table. Their own party's president was not welcome at this convention. Ackeld, the governor of Illinois, who years before released a group of working men in the Haymarket riots, some considered him a hero, others considered him a scourge, didn't necessarily like William Jennings Bryan, thought he was too young, too green, sounded like a preacher sometimes when he spoke. Didn't think Nebraska was a good state to launch from. Had a couple other candidates. But the silver rights, as they were called, they were in control of this convention. And they had made sure that the current president, Grover Cleveland, it was known, was not welcome here. David Hill, governor of New York, an Easterner, was not smiling. And a reporter noticed it. I never smile at a funeral, he told a reporter. Silverites in the West and the South, if you added the populist vote scored in the 1892 election while Grover Cleveland was winning that election, plus the Silver Western Republicans who were so committed to the silver issue with the right candidate they'd join, plus the Democratic Party, the majority issue is silver. You could win. A lot of people are going to tell the story of William Jennings Bryan and say he gets up and makes a speech about his candidacy for the presidency and wows everybody. But that's not actually what this speech is about. It's actually a platform plank about the silver issue and about setting federal policy to fix the value of silver currency, 16 to 1 of gold, and to make the coinage of silver unlimited and to be opposed to what was called monometallism. This platform plank needed to be voted on. The votes were probably there in the hall. It was going to be preaching to the choir, but it needed to be advocated for, and there would be speakers against. This is where William Jennings Bryan is called to speak to this convention. It's not anything to do with himself or running for president. However, he does have a national following, and he makes sure those people are in attendance, and they brought other people, other delegates. 
and everybody's ready, the lemon is tossed aside. William Jennings Bryan mounts the platform, not running for president, defending the party's majority draft platform. Because of the articles that he's written on this silver issue, there are cheers as soon as he gets up. They knew him, but most have not heard the sound of his voice, only his typewritten words. That's about to change. There are bandanas thrown as he approaches the stage, red bandanas. I've come to speak to you today in defense of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty. Every word that he would make in this historic speech was planned for four months. The individual is but an atom. He is born, he lives, and he dies. But principle is eternal. He's turned this obscure economic policy anyone could have advocated for into a crusade. To those who attack silver policy as selfish, as hurting business, he says, your definition of what a businessman is is too limited. The man who is employed for wages is just as much a businessman as his employer. The merchant at a crossroad, he said, the country lawyer, is just as much a businessman as the powerful metropolis attorney or the merchant of New York. By now when he speaks, he pauses at moments. Merchant of New York. And the audience fills the gaps with cheers. Miners, he says, miners, his language is rich, who descend into the bowels of the earth. Farmers who go off in the morning and toil in the day. Brian is equating them to the man who merely bets on the market. Call it demagoguery. He knows it will be. It is called that. Brian is not just uh, throwing off red meat, but he's answering charges that will come to the silver platform's way. He attacks the governing philosophy for much of the late 19th century, one that we'd still see today. We'd call it trickle-down. There are those who believe that if you will make the well-to-do prosperous, it will leak through to everyone else. He rejects it. He calls instead to make the masses prosperous. It will find its way up through every class that rests upon the average man. In the audience, many are shifting from, this is a good defender of our silver policy that was probably going to pass anyway, to... Why aren't we running this guy? Ah, my friends, we say not one word against those who live upon the Atlantic coast, but those hardy pioneers who braved all the dangers of the wilderness, who have made the desert to blossom as the rose, those pioneers away out there, rearing their children near to nature's heart where they can mingle their voices with the voices of the birds out there, where they have erected schoolhouses for the education of their children and churches where they praise their creator and the cemeteries where sleep the ashes of their dead are as deserving of the consideration of this party as any people in the country. Brian's intensity increases as he goes on. We have petitioned. Our petitions have been scorned. We have entreated. Our entreaties have been disregarded. We have begged. And we have been mocked when calamity came. The hall is shaking. There is no recording of William Jennings Bryan's speech. It was before such a recording could be made. He did actually record it as an older man. We reply that the great cities rest upon our broad and fertile prairies. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city of the country. But now here he is 36, 
It is the issue of 1776 all over again. Our ancestors, but three million in numbers, had the courage to declare their political independence. See, it's powerful oratory, but it's not hypnotism. That's logic being applied here. Shall we now as their descendants, when we have grown to 70 millions, declare that we are less dependent than our forefathers? They will search the pages of history in vain to find a single instance where the common people of any land have ever declared themselves in favor of the gold standard. They can find where the holders of fixed investments have declared for a gold standard, but not where the masses have. So we get to the last point, and this is the line that's remembered from the speech. It's a warning to the supporters of a hard gold money policy. Money backed by what's in the Federal Gold Reserves and nothing more issued. We have the producing masses, he says to them. Then he pauses. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor, this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And it's not just what he says. Brian also acts it out. He bows his head. He puts his arms out when he says, cross of gold as if he is on the cross. The audience waits for more. And gets silence. It's over. And they fill in the gap again, shouting, walloping, screaming, screaming his name, screaming for silver. For Eastern Democrats, Grover Cleveland and his bunch, it's over. Brian has taken over the party. Everyone's talking about this speaker now. It's not immediate that Brian then becomes nominated. It's the next day. And he loses the first three votes. But he leads the fourth, and he wins outright in the fifth. The Brian bandwagon has begun, and Brian will go seven more times to his party's convention in his lifetime, and twice more he will be nominated by that party. He will change the party forever. Governor Ackgold, who wanted a radical candidate, wanted a silver position, still is, finds the convention going in a way, in his home city, going in a way that he didn't want to go with this Western guy who sounds like a preacher. What did he say anyhow? He asked someone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. There's no reason to belabor this and provide a spoiler alert or anything. We're lovers of history. We, we know the story here. William Jennings Bryan never became president. 
But it's worthwhile noting the Democrats get a million additional votes and a candidate that campaigns like never before, who's physically present in towns and cities, who puts his own body into what we'd now call swing states, mostly in the Midwest, through a special railroad car and speaking everywhere. You know, if you lived in Ohio, Michigan, Minnesota, there was a decent chance you could see William Jennings Bryan, if you really wanted to. We'll make a quick trip out east. But mostly this entire election of 1896 is fought in the heartland. He will indeed get the populist nomination in 1896. He will indeed get the Silver Republican Conference to support him. Democratic Party has their first inkling of the modern ideology that they have today, a more progressive ideology on a host of issues. Republicans develop their position stand pat, conservatism, basing their candidate in his home, appealing to normalcy to business, and raising tons of money from those businesses to beat back this this demagogue as they see it. There's no TV, but the nation is awash in posters, flyers, paid speakers. Brian and Silver is a novel 1890s occurrence, but the base of it is in a populist movement. The Grangers, the Greenbacks, the Southern Farmers Alliance, the National Farmers Alliance, including the African American Farmers Alliance, the sharecroppers and farmers. The meeting in Florida, we discussed it, has already talked about these issues and defined them. What populists want, a shorter work week, banking changes, silver, a platform in Cincinnati in 1892 is established and the People's Party runs. It's easier to say populist and people's party all the time. And they eke out their own existence separate from the Democrats, separate from the Republicans. We James Weaver, a general, a union general from Iowa who gets that nomination, is kind of a moderate. The party wants respectability to increase the money supply, to help farmers. Weaver doesn't win, but he gets some states. He is the number two party in several southern states where normally Democrats would have, say, 80% of the vote. He's challenging that in Alabama. He's challenging that in Texas. Slightly challenging it in Mississippi, Tennessee, North Carolina. There's a new option. And so one way to see the 1896 election and the way the story is normally told is William Jennings Bryan and his great crusade and his new way of campaigning. And that's all true. He's increasing the size of the tent of his party and trying to bring in populism into one of the two major parties. So Brian, while this radical for his time, is still partially responsible for the fact that there are two major parties. Because when a new issue starts and there's a third party, the two parties compete for who can pick up that third party. And in this election, it was the Democrats. But it was not enough. Brian gets tripped up in battles over who's going to be his vice president between the two parties, the populists and Democrats. They each pick different people. He couldn't patch up with Eastern Democrats. That, to me, is the key to the election. Brian, at one point, swings east and tries to patch things up with the New York Democrats, a critical state in that election. And he can't do it. He can't do it. Economy got a little better. There's even something that occurs towards the end of the election where wheat prices rise without having enacted any silver policy. And Republicans point to that and say, what's so magic about this silver? But more to the point, he also got stuck with the bill of the Grover Cleveland presidency. And Cleveland's second non-consecutive term, a lot of people blamed him for that recession, right or wrong. And Brian is a Democrat. Even if he's against Cleveland, he's a Democrat. In fact, one of the things to remember is Brian, who's out there on the stump attacking Cleveland's gold policy as much as, you know, uh, attacking his own party's president on it, shares the president's same position when it comes to tariffs and protection. And, oh, the Republicans let him have it on that. That it's the protection policy as much as the gold policy that led to ruin. Republicans have this luxury of not having to attack their own party, but just attack Brian. And then 
They can lump Cleveland in or they can make Cleveland the hero, the martyr, you know. Um, McKinley will say things supportive of Cleveland when it comes to the gold policy. But to lump Cleveland and Bryan and all Democrats when it comes to the tariff issue or anti-protectionism. They don't want to protect American working jobs, American business. That's the key to the 1896 election. But one thing you must say, the Democratic Party will never be the same. Brian's wing would be there for several decades. And really, it's the foundation of Woodrow Wilson's win. He doesn't get that nomination without Brian. Brian becomes his secretary of state. And who's the biggest fan of Woodrow Wilson and who serves in his administration? Franklin Roosevelt. So, in a sense, by the time you get to the 1930s, so maybe three decades and a half after he makes this speech, Brian's wing of the party really does win in a big way. And these policies that were so, were demagoguery or seen that way are adopted, adopted in many ways. In fact, to even go farther than Brian, Franklin Roosevelt just disregards the gold standard. Republicans in that 1896 also found a lesson that there was a coalition that they could capture a little bit less of a group of people and more of a group of influence. And that's Eastern Democrats, who for the first time in a while were going to vote Republican, that they could also turn out their base. We talk about silver and gold in the 19th century. There's still going to be fights about that going into the early 20th. FDR is going to First, take us off the gold standard, and you're going to see experimentation with that going forward forward to the point now where gold has very little to do with money today. It is a money. People do collect gold, but it's not tied in the way that we absolutely thought, or some absolutely thought had to be, in the way the winning party in 1896 absolutely thought it had to be. But actually, they didn't entirely think so. It was just the way the politics worked. We'll talk about that. But here's the important point. Silver and gold is not everything that the populist movement offered. It was just an easy symbol to grab onto. It's colorful. In fact, Henry Demarest Lloyd, a writer, um, called it the cowbird of American politics, referring to a type of bird that waits for the nest to be built by the sacrifice of another bird and then takes over the nest for its own babies. Lloyd says of the silver and gold issues and of the silver rights, they waited till the nest had been built by the sacrifices of labor and others and then laid its eggs in it, pushing out the others, which were smashed on the ground. We gotta watch when we tell this story. I like to tell it. I think it's an awesome story that this... 30-year-old, you know, came and uh, took over a party. And nobody planned to, to elect him initially. And, and I think it'll always be a great story of politics. But not only was he not successful, you know, you can look at that election and look at some of the states, and it's just like happens a lot, a couple more thousand votes in a few of these states. It flips to Brian. He wins the Electoral College. I mean, but it was kind of known by the end that it would be lost because there was another side. Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, not yet on any ticket, called Brian a small man, full of contemptuous pity, and Atgeld in fleecing covering. See, he was really afraid of Atgeld, who had, who he thought was the real power. We can see the jaws of the wolf, Theodore Roosevelt declares. Atgeld had pardoned prisoners accused of throwing bombs at the Haymarket riots. Atgeld, he said, would convive wholesale murder and justify it by cunning sophistry. This was a common attack, too. Brian's just kind of a cover. It's just kind of the sheep. Fleecy covering. Hard times are with us. The country is distracted. Very few things are marketable at a price above the cost of production. Tens of thousands are out of employment. The jails, the penitentiaries, the workhouses, and insane asylums are full. The gold reserve at Washington is sinking. The government is running at a loss. 
It's called Coins Financial School. It doesn't seem like the stuff that would start a political revolution. I mean, it's just a book. Brown book, copy that I have, copyright 1894, dedicated to those trying to locate the seat of the disease that threatens us, the life of the nation. This book is dedicated by William Harvey. And there's a picture of a fellow who's very well-dressed. He's plump. He's got plaid pants and a vest, nice jacket, a top hat. And he's in the middle of a scale. And the gold is rising above him on one side of the scale. On the other side is wheat and silver coins. It's only when you look closely that you'll notice that he's holding the wheat and the coins down on that side of the scale, bringing the gold artificially up. In case it's not clear, there's a little tag attached to the man that says, Financial Manipulator. This was a bestseller, and it tells the story, and like any good story, it starts from the beginning. At the Christian era, the metallic money of the Roman Empire amounted to 1,800,000,000. By the end of the 15th century, it had shrunk to 200,000,000. These are huge numbers for people in these times. Dr. Adam Smith informs us that in 1455, the price of wheat in England was two pence for bushel, per bushel. History records no such disastrous transition as that from the Roman Empire to the Dark Ages. Population dwindled, and commerce, arts, wealth, and freedom all disappeared. The people were reduced by poverty and misery to the most degraded conditions of serfdom and slavery. The discovery of the New World by Columbus restored the volume of precious metals, brought with it rising prices, enabled society to reunite its shattered links, shake off the shackles of feudalism, and to relight and uplift the almost extinguished torch of civilization. And to this, Coin Financial School, Coins Financial School cites the U.S. Monetary Commission of 1878. Honest labor seeks employment it cannot find in the hungry and the shelterless. Our unemployed are seen daily around the Columbus statue without hope and despair. The New World in 1893 celebrated the discovery of America during a period of depression brought about by the destruction by law of one half of the precious metals as primary money. So destructive, so blighting is the effect that the people are being reduced to poverty and misery. It is a time for wisdom and sound sense to take the helm. And Coyne, a young financier living in Chicago, acting upon a suggestion, established a school of finance. So what you're going to see here, and there's a picture of this guy, Coyne, is a fictional account of a school, but you get to sit in on the various lessons from this very wise individual. In money, there must be a unit. In arithmetic, as you are aware, you were taught what a unit is. Thus I make here on the blackboard the figure one, that in arithmetic is a unit. All countings are sums or multiples of that unit. A unit, therefore, in mathematics was a necessity as a basis to start from. In making money, it was equally necessary to establish a unit. The Constitution gave the Congress the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. Congress, the original Congress, adopted silver and gold as money. It then proceeded to fix the unit. That is, it fixed what shall constitute the amount of alloy to be mixed with it to give it greater hardness and durability. This was in 1792. The days of Washington and Jefferson, our revolutionary forefathers, who had a hatred of England. Among the first things they did after fighting a hard-fought battle with England and earning their independence was to make 371 and one-fourth grain of silver, the unit of values. That much silver was to constitute a dollar. In any case, what Coin's going to explain to several pictures of him at the blackboard, and you can kind of experience it, is that it started with the founding fathers. And then later, just in recent times, we stopped using single money, which had always been silver money, which had always been an American tradition. Coin will give several lessons in this book. He will um, give the benefits of silver money. He will answer critics. And it turns out many of these critics didn't actually, you know, write in and ask him a question at all. But he presents it as if they asked him a question and then he answers it masterfully. And so you can see for any movement, it's good to have a kind of intellectual or at least 
quasi-intellectual backup, a book, a thick book of arguments that you can point to because the average person doesn't really know all the arguments, even if they support the larger cause. And coins provided that. And if you had that backup and you were told that something very wrong was going on and that there was a solution, you might be propelled to walk, to take your case to your government. The army of Jacob Coxey wasn't a true army, and he wasn't a military general. He was an activist and writer. But he got a lot of attention for his plan to bring an army of unemployed to Washington, D.C., to petition the government. And it was organized like an army, with Coxey as the general and he having captains and lower ranks. It marched through many states, building momentum, 6,000 at least at one point. And other armies would come to find Coxey's army and join them. Some of them wouldn't make it from far west. The writer Jack London and many Californians came all the way from the rest to join the parallel army, Kelly's army formed in San Francisco. Charles T. Kelly's 2,000 people went to Ogden, Utah, and then Denver, and people welcomed the army and provided food. It was once my pleasure to spend a few weeks with a push that number 2,000, Jack London said, Mary Jones, known as Mother Jones, wife of an iron worker and a trade union activist, was a key supporter of Coxey's army. Not everyone's excited about Coxey's army. Laura Ingalls Wilder described a harsher version of towns afraid and troops guarding the government buildings as the army went through. The army was officially called the Commonwealth of Christ, and Coxey was calling for a $500 million bond financing program to build roads and employment. If it sounds like a lot, in CPI terms, just the cost of eggs, it's $15 billion today. If you use the value of labor computed today to then, it's $88 billion. It's not just that Coxey has this large army of unemployed people. It's also that from the beginning, he has a contingent of pressmen from all the major joining this army, marching with it, and reporting details to either scare people or awaken people to join his army. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. He gets to a farm outside Washington. He enjoys lo- donated food from locals. He avoids every effort by federal marshals to detain him. I like Thomas Frank 
and his take on this. He's the author of What's the Matter with Kansas, which uh, delves into these issues. From the first convention of the populist, the Kansas City Star, an influential regional paper, surveyed the Cincinnati Convention, where the party was born, and sneered that it bore a much closer semblance to a mob than a deliberative assembly. The conference from beginning to end was distinguished for its intolerance and extreme bigotry. The judgment of the Topeka Daily Capital, the leading voice of republicanism in Kansas, was harsher. The story about Cincinnati was as followed. Cincinnati rapidly filling up with the disgruntled ravelings of the old parties and making themselves ridiculously conspicuous by their gab. Hayseed in their hair, said another headline. Kansas alliancers proclaim their politics by the uncouthness of their personal attire. This, Frank says, is how the establishment welcomed the populist revolt into the land. And this is pretty much how the establishment thinks of populism still. From the very beginning, populism, populism had two meanings. There was populism as proponents understood it, a movement in which ordinary working people demanded economic reforms democratically and the way their opponents did, which was demagoguery. The name, Frank says, I give to this disdainful reaction is anti-populism. And when you investigate its history, you find adherents using the same rhetoric over and over again, whether defending the gold standard in 1896 or NAFTA in 2016. anti mobilizes the same sentiments and draws on the same stereotypes. It sometimes even speaks to us from the same prestigious institutions. Its most toxic ingredient, talking about anti-populism, a highbrow contempt for ordinary Americans, is still as virulent today. Now, it's interesting because Frank is writing his book, The People Know About Anti-Populism, at a time when President Trump had just been elected and there was a lot of talk about this. This is a, you know, a problem with democracy and things like that. Um, while making clear that the average populist and the history of populism doesn't know any kind of movement around a great leader like that. It should be exactly the opposite. He also takes aim at some of the people making statements about, oh, the real problem is democracy. And if we just had more institutional strength, we'd be better off. If we just had more elitism, we'd be better off in one form or the other. He has, you know, the heritage uh, foundation and the Brookings Institution, like left and right, will both be saying some of the same things on a topic like that. So I find Frank interesting in this regard that populism did stoke anti-populism. And one of the things is going to be in Kansas, William Allen White is going to become a kind of a, what's the best way to say, like a Ben Shapiro, Rush Limbaugh type in what happens to him because he's a very young man. He writes a story about what's the matter with Kansas. And it's like, no one wants to come here. Everyone's leaving their business. And it's because we've got all these crazy populists. Kansas was kind of the center of the populist movement. And Weaver wins that state in 1892. Brian picks it up. It's going to get a populist governor. It's going to elect a populist legislature. Oh, so they think. Republicans challenge the results. Populists occupy the legislative building in the chambers, Republicans gather arms and make ready to attack that chamber and perhaps gun down the populace with the populist governor who is in office working with the militia, militia controlled by Republicans, they work out a deal. Goes to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court ends up ruling for the Republicans and Kansas's legislative war is over. But what's the matter with Kansas, William Allen White writes? Why do we have people saying raise less corn and more hell? Who, you know, and, and, it, and, and it's this kind of anti-populism populism that propels White to like being repeated in all kinds of newspapers. He gets some stardom out of this. He becomes friendly with presence. He's going to be one of Theodore Roosevelt's good friends, friendly with Taft as well. But as Frank notes, eventually... William Allen White is going to change his mind 
and become more populist in the 1920s and 30s. He's also going to become a courageous speaker against the Klan in Kansas. So when you talk about populism, because it can get to issues of the uh, the downsides of democracy, because it can get to issues of demagoguery, perhaps a leader disguised as populism, right, brings up all these issues, it becomes very complex. And it's just as complex to think about a story, a very popular story that comes right out of these times and with images from these political battles unmistakably. But it's just as confusing to try to find out what that author meant. And of course, I'm talking about The Wizard of Oz. So we focus a lot in 1896 on Brian and not always on McKinley. If we do focus on McKinley at all, it's not for his political art, but because he spent so much money in the campaign. And he certainly did. One of the things that I believe happens is that if Brian can open up political language and start using biblical metaphors. And, you know, there's more than that. There's an entire passage in that cross of gold speech while he's talking about this noble idea of silver money, where he compares McKinley to Napoleon and say that the waves of St. Helena are starting to crest, you know, saying he's making fun of his size in a little bit there, or just the fact that he's about to lose, you know, that he was it turns out that McKinley's nominated on the anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, something that might have been more on 19th century minds than 21st century minds. But if Brian can amp up the political rhetoric, so can Republicans. And so you're going to hear in this campaign that they constantly assert that Brian is un-American. And that probably wouldn't have been said about a major party candidate in the past, un-American, that, you know, the idea... Because he is um, wanting to redistribute wealth and also his tariff policy where if you're in favor of low tariffs, that means, well, you're going to give away everything to other countries. McKinley often uses the word cheap, that silver proponents are going to make this country cheap. We don't want a cheap country. It belies that there's a whole range of compromises that McKinley actually um, – in his positions. Brian is the one, in a way, in a sense, that encourages McKinley to be more for the gold standard. Because initially, the Republican Party is full of people who support the silver position. Seeing it as the Democrats were silver, the Republicans gold, would actually not be accurate. There are many people at the St. Louis Convention. Foraker, who's a former governor of Ohio, who is somebody that McKinley needs his support, you know, is a silverite. And then there's a lot of positions in between. The current policy at the time is that you use some silver in the money and some gold. So one of the things that's going to happen, McKinley's very careful, and his campaign manager, Mark Hanna, very careful about what they say, like in one document, in a platform document, they eliminate the word goldie and just say the existing currency standard, where gold proponents want it to be the existing gold standard. And they do things like that, which are leading people to have some questions. Gold supporters weren't just seeing the world as them choking little people, choking farmers and workers, as in Brian's rhetoric. And it's important to see their point of view. This from President McKinley, Robert Mary, who I had on the show. Gold advocates countered the call for more liquidity by noting that the nation's money supply had increased by 240% since 1860 and 104% since 1872, much faster than the rise in population. So there's more money growing faster than the population. Global gold production had increased substantially in previous years, bolstering the money through new supply. And they have their own publications, most uh, notably The Nation, which has a series of articles, just a number of articles on free coinage, arguing that the price of wheat reflected supply and demand ratio and wheat itself had nothing to do with the money supply, as Brian and other advocates were saying. There's still holes in that argument. 
And not that this is to be a course in, you know, currency economics, which I'm not qualified to do. But, but you know, if your argument is that when new supplies of gold are found, the money supply will get better, that's great. And it's going to be prophetic because they're going to find that gold in Alaska during the 1890s. But how did they know that was going to happen? You are limited still if you tie things to gold to getting more gold supply. So we don't have – it's one of the reasons why – the money operates the way it does today in a way that neither Brian nor McKinley would like or advocated for, but something more modern. So we also have to to talk about McKinley and his position because as a relative Westerner, as an Ohio governor seeking the nomination, previous issue that he had taken a clear position on was tariffs. The McKinley Tariff of 1890 had his name on it. Tariff raising bill, taxes on import, raising revenue for the government, protecting industries. It was a protectionist tariff, and he is for that position in 1896. It will be an issue on all posters. It's an American issue. It will be associated with the eagle, with the flag, protecting American industries. Here's what Bob Mary says about the run-up to the St. Louis Convention where McKinley will be nominated As McKinley Associates grappled with the issue, the basis of their discussion was a document crafted in Canton, McKinley's hometown, by him and others, and hand-carried by Mark Hanna to St. Louis. The crucial elements of McKinley's draft stated that the party favored sound money unreservedly and opposed any effort to debase our currency or disturb our credit. The party was committed to maintaining all the money of the United States, whether gold, silver, or paper, at par par with the best of money in the world. His position doesn't have an objection to silver as long as it could be maintained at parity with gold. And how they're going to do that? And this is a key to the Republican position. It's not just like gold versus silver. They want an agreement with other countries to do the same. So we'll do bimetallism, bimetallism, gold and silver, if other countries will do it as well. Until then, it's the plain duty of the United States to maintain our present standard. As we get to the St. Louis Convention, Mark Hanna pulls off something masterful. He knows that Easterners are arriving and they want McKinley to be stronger on gold than he has. Henry Cabot Lodge, a brilliant but haughty Yankee with a romantic vision of America's destiny and a streak of dauntless intolerance as one observer admiringly put it. Arrived bent on forcing the word gold into the currency plank by whatever means necessary. On Monday, he marched into Hannah's office, and without any preliminary greeting, despite its being the first time the two men had met, announced, Mr. Hannah, I insist on a positive declaration for a gold standard plank in the platform. Hannah looked up from his desk. Who the hell are you? Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts. Well, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, Hannah said, you can go plumb to hell. All right, sir. I will make my fight on the floor of the convention. That's what Lodge says. Maybe, I don't think Hannah consulted his client McKinley. So you have this really early example of what might happen between a consultant and a political client, you know, I doubt that if Hannah asked McKinley's permission to say that to the very important senator from Massachusetts, he would have gotten it. Uh, but nonetheless, it's what Hannah does because he's got something in mind. It's precisely what Hannah wanted, Bob Mary writes. Convention rumors that the Eastern goldmen were marshalling their forces to take over the drafting of the currency plank. So, It appears in newspapers that Easterners are insisting McKinley adopts this attitude. Here's what a Washington Post headline says. Hannah yields to Lodge. McKinley commits to a gold standard. But he does so with everybody knowing or thinking that they know that it's not really his position. It's been forced on him by Lodge, by Thomas Platt in New York. Uh, big boss there, by several other Easterners. The Western silvermen, Bob Mary writes, might not like where the convention was going, but they couldn't blame the man in Canton, that's McKinley, who was widely viewed 
as more sympathetic to their interests than the convention seemed to be. Hannah later writes a friend, the whole thing was managed in order to succeed in getting what we got. And that was my only interest. So he positions himself to be ready for a strong gold standard. And then once Brian's nominated in the Democratic convention, McKinley can go all the way gold. But it really wasn't his position to start with, nor the position of the Democratic Party, of the Republican Party. And they still have this plank in there about seeking out international cooperation to perhaps get it to gold and silver. But as it turns out, McKinley will be the president. It won't happen until 1900. 1900, four years after Brian's cross of gold speech, it's McKinley who is actually president and will take out a gold pen and sign the bill authorizing a gold standard in the United States money. It's incredible uh, when you think about it. (laughs) He very much did, very much did crucify everyone on a cross of gold, so to speak. But by then... The supply of money has increased. Wheat prices are up. The economy's doing great. So the idea that, uh, you know, well, it's too evident then that the, the simple money equations don't work. The Wizard of Oz, which small businessman and editor Frank Baum was writing at this time, as we indicated, begins with the cyclone and his images of gold and silver of East and West, of lions and scarecrows, all used in political cartoons and statements at the time. It's important to remember if you only have watched the movie and not seen the book that Dorothy's slippers, red in the movie, are silver in the book, and she's walking on the yellow brick road. In the desk at his shop, we believe Baum had a model of a tin woodsman with an axe. Perhaps, and many people see as a symbol. Here's the line in the book. They turned and walked through the first of a few steps when Dorothy discovered something shining in a ray of sunshine that fell between the trees. One of the big trees had been partially chopped through, and standing behind it with an axe in his hands was a man made entirely of tin. He's a man... Let's note that. He's not some kind of robot or something. He's a man, but he's made entirely of tin. Did you groan? Dorothy asks. Yes. I've been groaning for over a year. And no one has come to help me. Well, if you know the story, of course. He needs oil. He's rusting. And it's perhaps a symbol of industrial workmen. Now, it's important to say about the... Wizard of Oz, that it's, it's gone over and over again. There's a professor uh, in the 60s who comes up with a whole theory that every piece of the Wizard of Oz is tied to the politics of the day, that uh, the lion represents Brian, that the wizard's McKinley and things like that. It is, that's been gone over a lot and it's not so easy. Baum himself says it had nothing to do with politics. He was merely trying to create a modern nursery rhyme. And you can agree when you look at the time. And if you wanted to pull symbols that weren't, say, princes and frogs and things like that, but were modern symbols, that's what was available in magazines and cartoons of the time. Images like scarecrows and the Tin Man in a form, you know. He either used OZ as an ounce of gold or his file cabinet draw had an O to Z file. His son says his father was a populist, but that was his youngest son and perhaps too young to know. Baum always insisted there was no politics. He had been an editor. His newspaper articles contained some accounts of populism, but also some poems and other things that were supportive of McKinley. I tend to believe it's just kind of common uh, imagery, and in, if anything, uh, it's a mix of both making fun of sort of both approaches. But in this, like, yes, I've been groaning for a year. No one's come to help me. Uh, even if Baum didn't intend it, people read into that symbolism of the industrial worker. And it's kind of true because the one thing Brian couldn't get is that industrial worker to join his crusade. They mostly vote with the Republicans at this time. 
Brian's becomes a pharma crusade. And it's not till later that you're going to build that coalition of industrial workers and farmers together to vote uh, Democrat. And that coalition has been fractured and split and reorganized since then in a lot of different ways. Oil my neck first, the Tin Man says. Then the joints in my arms. And when he receives the oil, the Tin Woodman says, This is a great comfort. I have been holding that axe in the air ever since I rusted. So, I mean, what is it? Is it a symbol of the industrial worker or the unemployed worker who's now employed? I mean, I think there's all of these things. Even if he's not intending to be political, it's in there. I don't think we'll ever know. Coxie's army that was launched with so much promise and so much enthusiasm and press coverage and reaches Pittsburgh. There's a lot of support. The authorities in Pittsburgh are a little scared of this wandering army. They cordon them off into one park and eventually don't allow visitors to come see them or only in small groups. Um, Call Brown, one of Coxie's sergeants in the army, says, they have penned up our men like cattle. But there's help, and there's people reaching out. A Pittsburgh firm provided 500 pairs of shoes for Coxie's army. Here's what a Pittsburgh paper says. Laugh and scoff at the Coxie movement, as many do, and more wish they could. The scene on the Mahungahela Wharf would convince any but the thoughtless that these be times of unrest and discontent with the prevalent social condition. When they march away from Pittsburgh, they're met by a coronet band saluting the army as it marches towards Washington. And a side note, there's a fellow that's with Coxey's army who, when asked what his name is by some of the reporters, he just says, I'm unknown. And he's then called the great unknown and he makes a thing out of it. And, um, he advocates various positions. He's quoted in papers, but he never says his name. And eventually, he tries to take over uh, as second in command at Coxie's army, but Coxie intervenes and sends the great unknown away. He'll arrive at a Maryland farm right outside. A smaller group, not the entire army of several hundred, will approach the capital, attempt to go on the lawn, and they will be attacked, beaten by Capitol Police. Coxie himself will be arrested and fined for trespassing. That ends Coxie's movement temporarily. He will be back in 1914, and this time he'll be invited to speak. So you get this passage in The Wizard of Oz, and it's like, um, they finally meet Oz, sends for Dorothy, and he says, sit down, my dear, I think I found the way for you to get out of this country. And back to Kansas? Well, I'm not sure about Kansas, for I haven't had the faintest notion which way it lies. But the first thing to do is cross the desert, and then it should be easy to find your home. How can I cross the desert? Well, I'll tell you what I think, said the little man. You see, when I came to this country, it was in a balloon. You came through the air being carried by a cyclone, so I believe the best way to get across the desert will be through the air. Now, it's quite beyond my powers to make a cyclone, but I've been thinking the matter over, and I believe I can make a balloon. How, said Dorothy. A balloon, said Oz, is made of silk, which is coated with glue to keep the gas in it. I have plenty of silk in the palace, so it'll be no trouble to make the balloon. But in all this country, there's no gas. It won't float, remarked Dorothy. It will be of no use to us. True, answered Oz, but there's another way to make it float, which is to fill it with hot air. Hot air isn't as good as gas, for if the air should get cold, the balloon would come down to the desert. Are you coming with him? Yes, yes, I'm tired of being a humbug. If I should go out of this palace, people would discover I'm not a wizard, and then they would be vexed with me. Oz sent word to his people that he was going to make a visit to his great brother wizard who lived in the clouds. Oz ordered the balloon carried in front of the palace, and the people gazed upon it. The tin woodman had chopped a big pile of wood, and now he made a fire, 
and Oz held the bottom of the balloon over the fire so that the hot air that arose would be caught in the silken bag. So essentially what you have is Oz in this balloon and he flies away. And it, it to me, the, the, the metaphor of hot air as a politician talking, uh, useless person going to this palace to seek out solutions for someone else to solve your problems, you know, puts bomb a little more on the kind of uh, bootstrap side of politics than the traditional populist side. I mean, both elements are there. So I do think that he is kind of just pulling from a lot of what's there to make a nursery rhyme and to, to have cool things happen. But in there, there's a little bit of a lesson. Like, don't go to this humbug politician with his hot air to get things done. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We've got a Patreon there. This is part two. We've got part three and four coming up. I want to thank you for listening.